Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. When it comes to giving in Australia, um, again, sort of, there's a, there's a mixed picture. If you look at something like the um, the World Giving Index, which is produced every um, year or so, um, Australia generally does really well. And that looks at giving money, time, sort of general kind of attitudes to generosity and altruism. And Australia does really well um, in that. But then if you look at sort of how our giving of money compared to, say, the US, Canada, the UK, um, we aren't quite as high as they are um, yet. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. If you're a LinkedIn user, I welcome you to connect with me by searching for Mike Davis and also following Humans of Purpose to get fast access to all our latest episodes and updates. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Christian Seibert. Christian wears many hats as a researcher, educator, advocate, and non-executive director. He is Industry Fellow at the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne University of Technology. He's also an advisor to Philanthropy Australia and the Chair of Mental Health First Aid Australia. You can learn more about these great organisations by hitting the links in our show notes. We've been lucky to have Professors Joe Varriquet and Gemma Carey from the Centre for Social Impact on the podcast previously. I know Christian through his research and writing on charity regulation and improvement, philanthropic giving trends and innovations, and best practices in both these areas. He's also prolific on Twitter, so you can check out his posts there, again with a link in our show notes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Christian as much as I did. Christian, I'm so thrilled we could make this happen. We've found out that we only live about 10 k's away from each other, so we could almost like walk and high-five each other before we start, <laughs> but good to see you on Zoom otherwise, mate. Thanks so much, and, and yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. A long time in the in the making, but I'm glad we're both here. Can we kick off by hearing a bit about your story and take us as far back as you want to? I believe it's quite some time you're going to take us back, and um, I'd love to hear all about how you ended up where you are today. Back to the 1980s when I was born, my favourite decade, not just not because I was born then, but because of the music. Um, so um, I was born sort of in 1982, December 1982, in a in a place that was that was very different to what Australia was like in December 1982. So I was born in Poland um, during sort of the end of the the communist era in Poland, but people at the time weren't aware of that. So. In, early, in the early 1980s, Poland had um, a, sort of a really unstable time in Poland. There was a period called martial law, basically, when there was curfews, tanks on the street, um, really sort of empty shells, a really challenging time um, in Poland. There was the um, independent um, trade union solidarity that was being sort of um, taken on by the government. And, yeah, that's that's when I arrived on on the earth and a very different time and um, interesting too when I, I think back to it because it sort of shows the, the the different ways that society, that government can function or or not function, and, um, <laughs> something that I sort of do think about a lot and um, when I hear stories that my parents told of sort of, you know, living and working in Poland, et cetera. Um, but then when I was 
three years old, we came out to Australia. My father actually received um, an offer of employment here. He was a town planner and my mum was a doctor. And um, we came out to Australia. They wanted to leave Poland. They weren't sure how long they were going to go for. And yeah, um, a few decades later, here I am. Um, and actually, um, where I live here in Brighton um, is just a couple of blocks away from the, the, the preschool that I attended um, just after arriving. In oh, Australia. wow. We, we actually moved to Brighton. Um, we lived in Brighton as soon as we came. So, um, yeah, no, we came from Poland, came to Australia and, um, yeah, grew up as a, a kid with sort of two identities. Um, I was only three years old when I came, so um, I sort of, you know, as you can tell by my accent, um, quickly learned to speak English, etc. But I always had my my Polish identity and my Australian identity. And now in my late thirties, I'm very comfortable having a fused um, identity. But um, yeah, it's a it's been an interesting uh, sort of way to grow up and a, a culture to be exposed to. And um, yeah, it's also yeah makes me think a lot about sort of the kind of society we live in in Australia how government can work for good, for bad, the importance of civil society um, and, and, and liberty as well. So your career journey is almost equally as fascinating as your journey from Poland to Australia. Um, you spent time advising uh, parliamentary secretaries, ministers. Um, you're deeply involved in the um, in the formation of the Charities Act. Can you take us through just a bit of that passage um, professionally and then sort of to your time as an academic and also advising Philanthropy Australia as well? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's where I am in academia, um, but I also you know, have a focus in practice um, you know, working for Philanthropy Australia. I kind of ended up here by accident. Um, I, I did actually want to work in academia a long time ago, et cetera, but it's not that when I um, when I was in my sort of late teens or early 20s, I was like, I want to be a, an academic focus on philanthropy. Um, when I was at university, I didn't really know um, anything about the not-for-profit sector philanthropy I, I knew there was the Sydney Maya Music Bowl or something you know things like that but um when I was at university you had a career choice of government um or business really um I didn't know there was something called the not-for-profit sector or the charity sector um despite it employing you know now over a million people in Australia it was just wasn't something on my radar and um I studied law and economics and then I was heavily involved as well um quite heavily involved um, in politics in the Labor Party. I worked for various MPs and senators. Then I went to study in London uh, at the London School of Economics and came back. And, yeah, I came back just around the time of the the cliffhanger 2010 federal election. And after that, got a job working uh, for a minister, um, Senator Nick Sherry, and after that, another minister, David Bradbury. And that's sort of where the critical moment came that um, ended up sort of transporting me to where I am here now in the sense that I was working for David Bradbury, who was parliamentary secretary to the treasurer, who's sort of like the sort of the junior, junior minister in the treasury portfolio. And he was promoted to assistant treasurer, the sort of um, the middle level minister in that portfolio. And um, yeah, well, the assistant treasurer was responsible for setting up the ACNC and was kind of in the middle of that process and, um, and yeah, we were allocating responsibilities. I was acting chief of staff. I was like, oh, there's this thing called the ACNC that's being set up, so you know, charities regulation or something. Um, someone needs to look after that. Well, I suppose I studied I studied regulation 
regulatory policy at the LSC. Well, I'll take that, man. That sounds interesting. <laughs> you know, use some of my skills that I got from my master's, I can put them into practice there. Um, you know, don't, don't know anything about charities regulation, but, you know, how hard can it be? Um, and, yeah, that was sort of why I'm here now because of that sort of sliding doors moment really um, could have, you know, that could have ended up someone else's responsibility. But it was really interesting. I mean, there's the side of, you know, the, the, the technical policy side, all that I learned there. But really what happened is that the process of setting up the ACNC, getting the legislation through, that sort of thing, it was a really fascinating process, not be- just because of the policy and politics, but because of the people that I met and the people from the charities and not-for-profit sector that I didn't know existed. Um, and I met these people and I got to know this sector and I was like, wow, I'd actually really like to work with these people in this sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so many different ways that the sector makes a difference. And, yeah, it was, you know, really satisfying to have the ACNC established um, and then also in the on the final, I think, sitting day of 2013 before the election passing the Charities Act, the first statutory definition of charity in Australia. Um, but then, yeah, the, the government lost the 2013 election and I came to work for Philanthropy Australia. Um, sort of, you know, my next step and, yeah, I really wanted to work in the not-for-profit sector and, and working for an organisation like Philanthropy Australia was fantastic. And there I worked on, um, yeah, public policy, um, engagement with government, um, really trying to sort of, you know, shape the policy taxation and, and regulatory framework to encourage philanthropy giving. Um, and then fast forward a few more years, I was there for four years. Um, I was an adjunct fellow at the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne and I taught a unit already um, as a sessional and, um, yeah, and a position came up as a, it's called an industry fellow, which is sort of somebody who um, combines sort of their academic work with sort of practice, which I do. Um, like a academic, yeah, academic, and it's also an academic that doesn't have a PhD, but is working on one because I've got <laughs> one, and I'm meant to be doing more work on it. But I will get it done. Um, <laughs> we trust super- you. If my supervisors are listening, I'm very like, dedicated to and I will make sure I get it done. But um, yeah, and and I've been there since um, 2018, and really enjoy doing teaching, research, engagement. Um, media and yeah, I'm, I'm still an advisor um, to Philanthropy Australia, which I really yeah, I really find fulfilling. It's, it's an amazing mix of things that you're doing, and um, it must be the diversity, the love of the people and the sector, but also the diversity of the different types of work you can do that you, I guess, would make you quite satisfied. Definitely, and I think sort of I love teaching, and um, I, I really I enjoy research as well, but I really love teaching. Um, but I. I really love sort of the kind of policy development, advocacy work. And I think being able to kind of combine the two is really good because they they each inform the other. Um, Sort of the the practice work informs teaching and research and and vice versa. And, um, yeah, it's sort of it's different kind of work and um, I really enjoy it and that kind of, um, yeah, that engagement in, in lots of different ways. Talk, talk to me a bit about the the piece around translational research. So doing research that has a direct social impact, that sort of seems to be more the norm and particularly when you're working in a place like the Centre for Social Impact, I'm guessing that a lot of the work that you do um, is sort of catered around trying to advocate for social change as well as doing the research. I just yeah. wonder what your views are on that. Yeah, well, um, I, mean, I think there's a role for very 
different types of research. You know, pure research is vitally important and, you know, helps us appreciate the kind of society that we're in and, and understand, you know, the complexities of it, et cetera. But then sort of, yeah, applied research um, and very practice-focused research, which is what the Centre for Social Impact does and what the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne does really well. Um, I would say sort of probably, you know, one of the, the best centres in the world that um, does that in this area. Um, I'm a bit biased, but um, I, I would say that is, yeah, it's focused really on sort of, um, doing research that actually provides sort of meaningful, tangible um, contributions to how we address social challenges. And that can come from a whole range of different perspectives. The centre's got people, you know, like me, I've got um, a law, economics, public policy background, but then there are people with um, uh, sociology backgrounds, people with um, health backgrounds. It's really multidisciplinary, but I suppose all of it is focused on people using our skills, undertaking research, and then teaching, which is critical too, around kind of, yeah, how we can learn about what we're doing now, um, what we're doing well, what we're not doing as well, what needs to change, um, and engaging with um, partners within industry, with government. And often it's the case you don't see where sort of academia stops and where industry, and I speak of industry sort of broadly, the not-for-profit sector starts because there's such close engagement. Um, and I think that that's a really great way of operating. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. And so also a big part of your work seems to be thought leadership, both publication, broadcasting, you write for a number of uh, publications, including The Conversation, I think The Guardian, um, I don't want to rattle off too many titles because I'll probably get one wrong sooner or later. But how much of, you, of the work now is expected of an academic that is that kind of thought leadership work and or is that something that you just naturally have gravitated more towards yeah well i think different academics have different focus areas some sort of you know do more media and see engage that kind of engagement is really important an important part of that work and i certainly do others you know have a different focus and that's totally fine and it also depends on the issue area that you focus on and um in my area it happens to be that they're there is you know, media interest, um, you know, from time to time. There aren't that many academics really in Australia that can speak about it. There are a few, but not many. Um, and so, yeah, it's an area that I really um, focus a lot on, as you say, sort of, you know, writing pieces for the conversation, doing sort of radio interviews, sometimes TV interviews. And then and certain things can come up, like when there was the, um, the bushfire disaster um, sort of, you know, 18 months ago, um, and there was the Celeste Barber fundraiser, um, there was... I think one day I was actually on my way to a holiday, interstate holiday, when we could still do those to Queensland. And um, and I think sort of I did like four or five media interviews with like sort of, um, you know, radio shock jocks and stuff about it and stuff <laughs> and ABC as well. Like it was just, and I was in like sort of Hamilton Island on the phone. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Trying to find a quiet space and I was like, you know, talking to journalists on, on a yacht. Um, yeah, yeah. A, a yachting's not a regular thing that I do. It was it's a, it's, the, it's part of the big dog academic lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so yeah, it's I really yeah, I think it's important too because um there are you know it's important sort of to uh you know engage with the broader community about philanthropy and giving and um and yeah, try and demystify things some things because there are also some misconceptions and things as well. Um so yeah, it's something I really enjoy, I do a lot of. Um in terms of yeah, I mean, different academics will have different focus areas. It's an interesting one because universities certainly want to promote it and they want to encourage it. But 
unfortunate moment, the way the sort of incentives are structured, um, it's encouraged and I do it and I would always do it. But And it's recognised in a sort of informal way and it's certainly um, valued. But when it comes down to the sort of like um, sort of metrics that they use and things like that, um, it's probably not recognised sort of, I'm not talking about myself, but just in general, that kind of engagement, whether it's media yeah. or industry, it's not recognised enough. It still often comes down to sort of, you know, what journal did you publish some article in and what impact, ranking, impact factor and whatnot. Yeah. And what ranking yeah. does it have and et cetera. Um, and that, yeah, that's important as well. Um, universities are places of, you know, quality research, but say something like an article in the conversation, it doesn't actually, you know. Well, but I mean, this, this is a bit of a tension point for me because I think um, what you do when you write an article in the conversation is, is, um, by a huge multiplier effect, um, more accessible to far more people who have that base level of understanding that can actually engage with the content. So you're reaching huge numbers of more people with um, more simple uh, or structure or more simple way of writing. And, and that's that sort of makes me think a little bit about, about social media and Twitter as well and sort of, you know, how active do you have to be now um, on uh, Twitter or these these platforms as part of your identity and, and part of your work as well? Yeah, and, and I think on the conversation, I think, you know, it's a, it's a great model and it's an Australian success story like that's gone global now in terms mm. of these people that have expertise and, um, and knowledge about so many different areas and, you know, translating it into something that, you know, the, the broader public and the community can understand. It's and, the um, best. It's the best. It's, I love the conversation. It's fantastic. And I think um, it's, you know, something that, you know, I, I read a lot myself and um, I think it's, it's got such, it's, it's such a useful um, resource for so many reasons. But, yeah, you know, then there are other channels like, Twitter or LinkedIn and things like that. And it's, it's interesting. I, 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 in the past have spent, you know, I, I you know, tweet about things and I, I don't sort of sit on Twitter all the time, but um, this year I, I've scaled back my sort of Twitter engagement just because it's, um, you know, I, I actually used to have it on my phone and my iPad and I noticed I was on there a bit too much. And so I sort of deleted it off my phone and just have it on my iPad and check it a few times a day. But it's a, look, it's a, the positive side of Twitter is, um, you know, you can curate something where you can get information from so many people and sources and then also share insights and engage, et cetera. I've, I know people via Twitter that I feel I know, but I've not met them. Um, and I'm not talking about, some, you know, <laughs> I'm not talking about, I'm not about sort of random, you know, profiles that, you know, but like actual other yeah. academics and stuff. And yeah. I've stuff. I read articles that I never would have come across. I've been invited to conferences overseas by people I've met. The, the Twitter relationship is an underrated type of relationship. Oh. It's it's low maintenance. It's very distant. You can kind of chip in where, where you can. And it's it's sort of, it's a really strange new age informal bond that I'm starting to quite enjoy. Yeah. I mean, professionally, I would get much more out of Twitter than say LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it's given me more professionally and I contribute more via Twitter. Um, but I mean, I think the downside of it is, is that you get this, you know, stream of consciousness of, of, politics and other things and you know unfortunately you know i always try and behave very politely and respectfully on twitter but i see other people not doing that but also i see people who i really like and care about being treated really poorly and and yeah yeah, and, and i just think that there is you know um there's you know there's a good side to social media but there's a bad side to it as well and um 
I, I also don't think our brains are designed to be bombarded with information as much. So I kind of try and manage my use of it to, to only to get as much good out of it and to contribute good to it. But um, it's a two way thing. But um, sort of not let it control me. <laughs> I loved your post. I actually saw that post that you wrote about how to engage with Twitter in a more positive way. It was just simple and excellent. Yeah, well, I just, I mean, I, I, that, I actually saw, you know, someone that I, I know and care about was being, you know, you, you, they just had a rough time on Twitter and, um, and and they were taking a break and I sort of sent them a message just saying, you know, look, I hope you're okay and, you know, this place can be awful and, you know, um, yeah, take a break and, um I wasn't actually sure of the context of it, but I just sort of like, and then I just, every so often I actually do this, I just sort of say, look, you know, community service announcement, let's just be, you know, polite and respectful, um, kinder to one another. And, you know, yeah, my rule is that I don't say anything on Twitter that I wouldn't say to somebody in person. because Which I, is a great rule to live by generally, I would say. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people on Twitter, because it's kind of, if it's anonymous, that's one thing, but even though it's not anonymous, you forget there's another person at the end of this and people just some of the things I've seen, I, I just think, you know, people just need to remember that there are people on the other side of these exchanges. I um I often think about how podcasting has changed the way I communicate generally. And um now um I I consider myself saying what I'm writing, uh, when I'm writing it. And if I wouldn't be able to say it out loud comfortably, I don't write it. Mm. So it's just yeah. it's just a funny thing about talking before you write and sort mm. of, you know flipping that narrative a little bit mm. um yeah but you know just going back to what we were saying before you know about not having all those you know high impact factor accolades and all the academic accolades being a bit different to being quite known like despite what you might think about the academic um pressures to you know be a high performer in that space mm. if i had to say if someone said to me who knows the most about charities and philanthropy in the sector in Victoria or Australia, I mean, you're probably the only person I could think of who would be an expert commentator on that topic. So, and, and that's probably as a result of all the work you've done, you know, through these informal outlets. Mm-hmm. Credit to you. Yeah. And, and you know, um, I, I do take it very seriously and I think it's, you know, I enjoy it as well. And I think, you know, I actually enjoy that kind of engagement and I think it's important. And, um, and I, I, I certainly, you know, it certainly is, um, valued within university it's just that the metrics haven't caught up with it yet and um i think yeah it's it's many academics do it in different fields and it's really important as well and um and there are you know as well other academics focused on philanthropy and charities in australia um there's the australian new zealand third sector research network and other and and its members um and a number of different sort of academics across a number of different centers and um but yeah it's um it's really sort of you know it's I, I do think it's important and um and and I yeah these are issues that I'm it's a sector that I'm passionate about a topic that I'm passionate about so I enjoy talking about it just like I'm enjoying talking about it with you <laughs> yeah absolutely so talk to me a little bit about the state of philanthropy and also individual giving in Australia right now um, I know that you know people have been doing it tough through lockdown specifically in Melbourne and other states and um it's been a very challenging year and a half since March 2020 with covid what's been the effect on the generosity or the average level of giving of Australians um and also bigger giving like philanthropy yeah so it's interesting we we, we sort of don't have really any kind of hard data yet about the impact of covid-19 we do have some preliminary data um that um, John McLeod, um, who sort of, you know, does amazing analysis of, of, of giving data um, from, yeah, 
using credit card, NAB credit card data, that's um, anonymized, uh, sort of the identified, of course. Um, yeah, the, the, the JBWIN NAB charitable giving index basically looked at the data from last year and the impact of um, COVID-19. And it, yeah, it did show um, you know, a big impact. Um, but we don't have sort of the data yet, say, that's submitted to the ACNC that'll sort of give us a much broader picture. Um, anecdotally, I hear, you know, mixed things in some, some charities actually seen giving increase and high net wealth giving has um increase but then I hear you know the opposite as well so there's there's mixed signals but I mean where where we're at really is that sort of if the charity sector has an income of about 166 million dollars a billion dollars a year um their charities registered with the ACNC but the not-for-profit sector is more broader than that but um of that sort of all forms of giving as in sort of the small scale donations the things that I do and then sort of you know high net wealth philanthropy or grants from foundations amounts to about $12 billion. Um, and sort of the, the sort of structured component as in, yeah, from foundations, et cetera, is about sort of $2.4, $2.5 billion. So it's a relatively s- small part of the pie with sort of government funding um, income from trading being really important, but it's a, it's a critical part of the pie as well. And, um, when it comes to giving in Australia, um, again, sort of, there's a, there's a mixed picture. If you look at something like the um, the World Giving Index, which is produced every um, year or so, um, Australia generally does really well, and that looks at giving money, time, sort of general kind of attitudes to generosity and altruism, and Australia does really well um, in that. But then, if you look at sort of how our giving of money compared to, say, the US, Canada, the UK, um, we aren't quite as high as they are um, yet, but there are, you know, aspirations to get there. But one concerning trend that we are seeing is um, it looks like we're sort of seeing sort of high net wealth, sort of structured philanthropy increasing, which is great, but we are seeing sort of participation from the broader population decreasing. So we're seeing sort of the average amount that people give going up, um, but the percentage of people that at least are claiming donations through their tax return, and there are some limitations with um, that data because people might make a donation and then not claim it, they forget about it, et cetera. Yep. The proportion of people actually, you know, participating in giving is going down. So, um, yeah, there's a mixed story to tell there. And I think it just underlines the fact that we can't take these things for granted. And we are a, a generous country and a generous people, which is a good platform, but we need to take advantage of that, build on that, take that to the next level. And um, even when it comes to things such as um, bequests. Um, so actually earlier today, I was at a, um, a Zoom event for launching this um this sort of fund that um, a former colleague of mine, the late um, Dr. Christopher Baker, um, who was at the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne, um, he sort of endowed it. He passed, sadly passed away, but was had a really generous act of him and his um, partner leaving their, their house and many other things to a community foundation and a fund's been set up focusing on social justice, um, which was launched today. But Christopher, his, the focus of his research was bequests and charitable giving through bequests, and only 7% of um, wills have a 
bequest to a charity. Wow, that's that's um, that's extraordinarily low compared yeah. to what I thought it would be. Yeah, and so look, you know, it's an area where there's a lot of potential to um, increase that. We don't have some of the sort of sticks that um, other countries have, like inheritance taxes. Um, but you know, there's giving is not just about taxes and tax incentives. It's about the culture, about you know, being asked about what your financial planner or financial advisor, what the lawyer talks to you about when you you know drafting your will. It's all those conversations and sort of things that um, matter as well. So as a result of that, what are you seeing happen across? if people are giving less on average and a lot of um, charities are relying on um, proportions of their income being through fundraising, what is the flow on effect that not-for-profits in Australia are kind of grappling with? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, you know, COVID, the situation has been so unusual. Like it's, it's um, you know, there's been like if you're a charity that relied on kind of face-to-face fundraising, well, that, you know, had a big impact. But then if you were more reliant on online, well, that, you know, was, you know, beneficial, et cetera, and it depends what area you're in, et cetera. But there is, you know, a lot of competition now for the sort of the donor dollar um, and, at the same time, you know, government funding in many areas can be reduced, um, putting even more pressure to sort of meet that gap. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of competition, and there is that that, that broader participation is a challenge, and that sort of fuels the need for that competition. And there are so many different sort of factors influencing that. And I think over time, we're likely to see, um, yeah, more of a sort of role for higher wealth. Um, structured philanthropy. Just today, I saw that the um, the the co-founders of Canva, um, sort of Australian co-founders, um, sort of the valuation of the company based on a um, sort of funding round is in the billions, and mm. um, they've committed to sort of basically giving it all away. Mm. Um, and so we're now starting to see this kind of um, tech um, sort of. Uh, tech-driven giving surge yeah. in Australia. So we've got sort of, you know... Well, Mike Cannon-Brooks as well. Yeah, like from Atlassian, we've got Afterpay, mm. um, you know, again... Nick and Molnar now, and that crew. Yeah, the Afterpay founders and now the Canva founders. And we've got sort of this, like it happened in the US sort of, if, you know, five, ten so years ago in terms of the real surge. Where, yeah, These Gates are like the, uh, the Zuckerbergs of the US, really. Yeah, and many, and many others, et cetera. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, we're sort of, I think, on a a cusp of a sort of, or in the starting to see, I think another surge in that space. And um, I think it's really exciting, but I also think as well, it does present challenges because, you know, um, where you have sort of the concentration of wealth, you know, through um, a combination of, you know, enterprise, um, luck, you know, a variety of different factors, et cetera, um, hard work, but, you know, a variety of different factors um, and you're giving away, billions of dollars or, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, there's ways to do that well, there's ways to do that less well. You know, we've seen that in the US um, in particular. Um, and, you know, there's questions of power, accountability, who's making the decisions, who's sitting around the table, uh, um, those with lived experience, those with expertise, you know, are they sitting around the table? Are you trusting sort of those leaders in the charities and not-for-profit sector? to, you know, use the funds to sort of achieve social impact or are you trying to sort of as the sort of philanthropist trying to um, 
you know, um, be very prescriptive about where they go. And it's interesting because just in the last year, so talking about kind of the impact of COVID, um, Mackenzie Scott, who is the um, uh, an author and and was formerly married to Jeff Bezos, the, the founder of Amazon, um, so they, they separate, they divorced, and with her share of their wealth, um, she's sixty eight billion dollars. Yeah, well, it's it's gone up during um, during COVID, um, like a lot of sort of wealth um, has. She's committed to giving it all away and and looking at the approach that she's adopted, which is basically um, just giving large, completely unrestricted grants to a range of different organisations focused on economic justice, racial justice, um, philanthropic infrastructure bodies, not-for-profit sector infrastructure bodies. It's a really interesting approach because she's not like, okay, this is the problem. How can I design a solution? Which is the kind of Bill Gates type approach. Yeah. It's really more like, okay, well, we've got issues with economic justice. That's why I've got all this money. And she's open about that. Um, we've got issues with racial justice. We've got, you know, okay, I'll sit, I'll, I'll work out, you know, with some advisors and experts, you know, 100, 150 organizations, and they literally get a call. I actually know someone that works for one of these organizations. They got like a call saying, no, you've, you're getting $10 million. Um, <laughs> or something like that. Basically like, Imagine being that person getting that call. Yeah, well, and it's a, it's a really different approach. It's still very mm. strategic, um, but it's really kind of putting the power in the hands of the the leaders in the sector. But it also raises questions around, you know, there wasn't a, a grants round. So, you know, it, if, you, if you're not an organisation that came on the radar, um, you missed out. And so, yeah, it's it, it, I think it's really There's some um, selection bias there as well. So yeah. you know, probably who she's heard of would be featuring mm. prominently. Mm. Um, let me ask you, I mean, there's a lot of talk at the moment about sustainability of not-for-profits and re- the resilience of not-for-profits and, you know, the ones that have thrived or have maybe not thrived but done quite well out of COVID as opposed to sort of crumbling and, you know, uh, going into administration. What are some of the features or trends that you're seeing in some of the more resilient not-for-profits? Profits, um, through this period, yeah, it, it, it's interesting because um, um, I'm on on the chair of a uh, a charity, um, Mental Health First Aid Australia International, and um, sort of so you know we get a lot of our income through trading. We're effectively a social enterprise. We are a charity, but we're a mm. social enterprise as well. We get some government funding, but not not a huge slice. And um, and it was interesting because early on, sort of organisations that were reliant on trading and you know, especially sort of face-to-face delivery of courses and things like that, which um, we were and um, still are to an extent, was sort of, you know, it looked kind of precarious. And those that were kind of government-funded, it looked kind of, you know, they were the kind of safe ones in many ways. Um, but then things sort of changed as well and, you know, governments sort of, you know, reducing funding in certain areas and, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a challenge. I mean, I, I tend to think that it's easy to sort of say that not-for-profits and, and charities need to diversify their um, revenue streams, and I think, yeah, in principle, they do, um, but there are also limitations depending on sort of the area that you're in and um, and what you're trying to do, and um, not every not-for-profit can have a social enterprise-based model or set up social enterprises um philanthropy is great but um it's not you know generally going to be a source of sort of sometimes it is but not generally a source of kind of recurrent funding for 10 15 years or anything like that um so it's um but i do think sort of yeah sustainability is really it's focusing on that 
is a you know, key responsibility of the board and 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 management and seeing where things are going and how the organization's positioned and if it can sort of you know put aside some funds for a rainy day um and that sort of thing is a, is a key focus but i don't think there's any sort of silver bullet there's no easy answer mm. that's a good response nuanced response so um at a time like this we all need hobbies to fall back on and yours is making electronic music so you, <laughs> you're, you're not dissimilar from a good friend of mine um whose name i won't mention but his name is joel burney he uh he bought himself a dj deck and is now um sending me these mixes via google drive that i can listen to on my phone and they he taught himself how to dj in about three weeks and he's better than some of the djs i already listened to so it's remarkable well, it's quite because my my sort of my my selection my growing selection of um sort of collection of of synths and um drum machines and mixes and things is is behind me here and yeah I mean I'd been interested in sort of eighties music sort of like synth pop and associated music sort of for a long time but I'd never really actually thought well you know how I mean I knew synthesizers make it but I didn't sort of really think much more about it than that I I, mean, I see them when I go and see them live and see them on stage etc but then sort of late last year, I was like, oh, I wonder how it's actually made. And like, you know, I just did a bit of research. And I was like, oh, there's a drum. I was just going to buy myself a drum machine. So in December, I bought myself <laughs> my first drum machine. Yeah. And, you know, um, sort of nine months later, I'm I'm very into it. And I've got a much bigger collection. After, I actually sold that drum machine because it was um, sort of, you know, I'd accumulated other items. My, my latest sort of acquisition, my sort of um, lockdown retail therapy is a 1984 Yamaha drum, drum machine that I got for a really good oh, price. Oh, wow. So, Beautiful. Um, I'm yet to sort of, I, I tested it, but I haven't fired it up fully. So I'm just, one challenge is I get new things. I need to find ways to sort of store them and connect them and position them because there's so many of them now. Yeah, that's a good hobby. I think it's far more productive than my lockdown hobby, which has been buying retro sneaker collabs from the uh, 80s and 90s as well. <laughs> I just that's bought cool myself, too. I just got myself a pair of Converse High Tops NBA Jam collaboration. Uh, I loved that game growing up. It reminds me of being a teenager and being, yeah. you know, and, and, and younger. And um, yeah, look, it's it's. I love the hobby. I really, I'm, le- you know, I like it because I sort of have, I can see myself learning and getting better. And I just I feel, I feel like I at least kind of have some sort of knack for it. And um, my dad was very musical, um, but I just I like doing it. I enjoy doing it. And um, I don't, you know, some people just collect them because um, they. And I do like them, the units. The but I I also just really enjoy doing it and sort of I can sit down and three hours later i'm like oh wow three hours four hours has passed i better um go and do the things i had to do <laughs> <laughs> got to get to that to-do list speaking yeah. of which uh, are there topics coming up for you that you're particularly interested in or themes emerging that you're paying a lot of attention to yeah i mean i focus a lot on sort of the the policy taxation regulatory framework for charities and the profit sector for philanthropy as well and um at the moment um there's sort of this yeah we're in the middle of this debate um what can we call it or um a- around some changes to the acnc regulatory framework and you know i'm obviously very familiar with that regulatory framework and often a case of oh yeah that's that's why that's there that's why this is there i remember when that mistake was made and stuff like that but um basically yeah there are these things called governance standards that charities have to comply with when they're registered with the acnc um and there is a currently a governance standard which basically says if you commit a really serious offense an indictable offense you can sort of have enforcement action taken against you including possibly losing your charity status and the government has basically 
made regulations that have, are going to say, well, and now also if you include some less serious offences, so-called summary offences, um, that also gives the ACNC those powers. And, um, yeah, it's really concerning because um, it's not that charities and people can break the law. I mean, they, they are subject to the law just like anyone else. But um, what this change would basically do is that we can we charities are organising peaceful protests, there's always the risk that some sort of, you know, minor act of trespass might take place. Um, and I'm not talking about breaking in somewhere, but just, you know, you've got a government department, a public forecourt, which is public, but it's actually government land. And there's a protest and they're told to move on. And, well, it's a protest, so they don't move on straight away. But five minutes later, they move on peacefully. Well, technically, that's trespass. Technically, that would mean that these regulations are sort of triggered and the powers in the regulations and the charity that's organised that protest could um, lose its charity status. And so basically it would just lead to this chilling effect where, well, they just won't organise these forms of um, you know, protest, a vital form of civic engagement obviously has to be within the law, et cetera. Um, but it's a key part of democracy. I've talked about um, sort of, you know, my origins being born in Poland sort of during the early 1980s, well, that was a society where, you know, civil society was stifled, where um, protest was, um, you know, yeah, repressed. And I think we really need to um, protect this space because there is this term sort of the closing space for civil society. Around the world, we're seeing governments sort of um, tighten things up and I think this is that sort of closing space manifesting itself in Australia. So where, where, that, where that's at basically is that the regulations have been made. I won't go into the detail of what's happening, but they're before the parliament in Canberra and there's a chance if, this, if there's a majority of senators that um, sort of oppose them to get them sort of, uh, yeah, they won't come into effect, but it's quite um tight in terms of getting those senators over the line. So um, hopefully it happens, but that'll be yeah, in October. There'll be a lot of um, sort of debate around that and focus on that in the parliament, in the Senate as well. But yeah, it's a really problematic change and um, yeah, it's um, very concerning. So we'll keep our eyes on that for the future. Um, amazing chatting to you, Christian, and I've just been looking forward to this for so long. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah, well, um, they can follow me on um, on Twitter. And although I said I, I, I don't tweet as much, I don't sit on there as much as I used to, I still do. I still am on there. Um, yeah, connect with me on, on LinkedIn as well. Um, I do sort of have a yeah, yeah up-to-date um, website at, at Swinburne University where sort of everything I do is sort of on there. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, um, I'm sort of I try to sort of use various different channels. Um, obviously, they can, you know, study um with one of our sort of postgraduate offerings where I'm one of the one, one of the um the, the teaching staff. Um but yeah lots of different ways to to connect and um and yeah and you know I'm always interested in, in meeting new people and and you know um hearing what they do etc. Yeah. Any any potential electronic music collaborations as well? Well I do I do have a SoundCloud account. And um, and I do sort of, you know, um, I do upload things there. And it's interesting because I can see like sort of from the beginning, the first song I did sort of pretty early on to where I am now, um, you know, I can see the evolution even for myself. That's a beautiful Um, thing. And um, and I can say, oh, yeah, it was a good effort that I started out. Um, But, um, but yeah, no, I 
I um I, I I do have that, and I really I really do enjoy it. And um yeah, and I'm once sort of the, the lockdown is over, you know, I, I like to get around to events and things like that. And um uh, got a bit of sort of Zoom fatigue when it comes to events oh, at the moment. But um but um yeah, looking forward to sort of meeting and seeing people again. Mate, thanks so much for joining me. Um, hang around for a second. We'll have a quick debrief and uh, we'll wrap up. No worries. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 